This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby Snymer. Her father recently served as Canada's special envoy on Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism, and now she's taken on the same responsibility for Israel. We should all be displeased at the quiet, at the silence that actually empowers and enables that terror with impunity. And a Toronto-based study finds Ontario patients who had female surgeons represent large savings for the healthcare system. We want to understand, you know, what are some learning lessons we can find here amongst, you know, perhaps our female surgical group that we can teach to all physicians. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A rise in cases of missing older Canadians is becoming a concern as baby boomers age. Canada's Search and Rescue Volunteer Association says those with dementia are more likely to leave their residence and wander. But if the person leaves the house is often at night, putting them at greater risk of injury or death, especially in winter. The concern has prompted calls for a silver alert system, similar to the Amber Alert for missing and abducted children. A few cities, including Toronto, now have voluntary vulnerable persons registries. One quarter of Canada's population is boomers, combined with the fact that three quarters of those with dementia live in the community in their homes, raising the likelihood that missing persons report will become a bigger problem over time. The World Health Organization is urging governments to increase taxes on alcohol. The WHO also wants taxes on products currently exempt, like wine in some European countries. It says every year 2.6 million people die from drinking alcohol and 8 million die due to unhealthy diets. So taxing at a high rate will hopefully create healthier populations. The agency also says taxing alcohol will prevent violence and traffic injuries. In its just released alcohol tax manual. The WHO says drinking alcohol is a casual factor in more than 200 disease and injury conditions, including some cancers, liver cirrhosis, and cardiovascular diseases. Just days after Moncton, New Brunswick voted to overturn a previous decision not to display a menorah outside its city hall for the first time in 20 years, comes news that a U.S. arts and cultural festival has canceled its menorah ceremony. Organizers of the Williamsburg, Virginia event said they didn't want to take sides in the current war and claimed that hosting a Hanukkah celebration would suggest that. The local United Jewish community expressed disappointment and said in a statement, the celebration was a symbol of our cultural heritage and had no political agenda. But the festival's founder said the menorah lighting seemed very inappropriate given current events in Israel and Gaza. 
a 70-year-old woman has given birth to twins in Uganda. The hospital posted the historic event to Facebook to announce the boy and girl were conceived through in vitro fertilization and born by way of C-section. Hospital says the woman is now Africa's oldest mother and that this story is not just about medical success. It's also about the strength and resilience of the human spirit. Mother and babies are all well. An apple a day keeps the doctor away, but a banana before bed helps you get a good night's sleep. A charity specializing in sleep support found eating fruit before bed tops the list of tips for getting a better quality sleep. It says bananas in particular can help you drift off due to their high level of magnesium and potassium, which help to relax muscles. Also making the list, grapes. Tart cherries and strawberries are the best sources of melatonin among fruits. Group also recommending almonds, fish, whole grain cereals, and cheese to help you drift off. But avoid eating a big meal just before bedtime as it leads to discomfort and indigestion. And spicy food in particular is a recipe for sleeping disaster. My daughter sent me a message. She said to tell you that you're dope. I'm dope. (laughs) My granddaughter told me I had riz. The Gen Z slang term in Oxford Dictionary's word of the year is riz. From the word charisma, it can be used as a verb like riz up or to chat up someone. Riz topped swifty, situationship, and prompt in the annual decision by the experts over at Oxford English Dictionary. I'm Bob Comsick, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Her father is Erwin Kotler, a former Canadian justice minister who served as Canada's special envoy on Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism and is the focus of the cover story in the latest issue of Zoomer magazine. He's also under around-the-clock police protection because of a threat to his life. Daughter Michal Kotler-Wunsch was named Israel's new special envoy to combat anti-Semitism just before October 7th. You're right that the official post that I currently hold as Israel's special envoy for combating anti-Semitism was just weeks before the atrocities of 10-7 and this war, this dramatic rise of anti-Semitism is a symptom of the war that has been raging actually for decades to demonize and delegitimize and apply double standards to the proverbial Jew among the nations, if you will, to the state of Israel, not only in the atrocities, the war crimes, the crimes against humanity perpetrated on October 7th, but actually more abhorrently in the responses to those atrocities. So who responded that you're displeased with or who didn't that you're not pleased with? I don't divide it so much into who I am pleased with or displeased with, because I, what I believe 10-7 is, is a moment of reckoning for the many spaces that have actually seen anti-Semitism festering and percolating below and above the radar for a very long time. I mentioned that the, the battlefronts have been sort of divided into, and I believe intersected on 10-7, whether it be the international institutions, the UN, which itself actually has enabled the demonization and the delegitimization and the double standard of the Jewish nation state. Well, those international institutions, the UN itself, and many of its agencies, UNRWA, the Red Cross, we've seen since 10-7 completely failing, call out the atrocities, the barbaric rape 
and sexual crimes perpetrated on that day that we've seen in the international institutions. Am I displeased? I think we should all be displeased at the quiet, at the silence that actually empowers and enables that terror with impunity. I'm just as much concerned, and I think we all should be, about another front in which this war has been raging, that is the university campus front. When we see people holding up signs from the river to the sea and uh, genocide now, we should all be troubled, whether that's happening on university campuses or on the streets. And finally, another front in which this war has been raging, it is the social media uh, platforms, of course, the digital space, the demonization, the delegitimization, and the double standards that are protected for everybody else. There are protected characteristics that cannot be said about them in the online reality. You can say anything you want about a Zionist. And that is where we realize that double standards have been something that has systematically over decades. And finally, the most Orwellian inversion of them all, the appropriation and weaponization of the Holocaust itself, in which the atrocities perpetrated against the Jewish people, the likes of which we have not seen until 10-7, the uh, appropriation and weaponization of the Holocaust and of genocide, a word now being used against Jewish students on university campuses. But I, we would be remiss if we didn't ask, would the calling of genocide against any other group or individuals be a problem? Would they be a violation of their codes of conduct? Would they be bullying and harassment? Because if so, then we have a big problem with double standards, including at Ivy League universities. And so I won't call it displeasure. I'll call it extreme concern. Because what I think is that we are at an existential moment where 10-7, like 9-11, are a moment in history that is an attack on civilization, is an attack on our shared humanity, is an attack on the world as we know it, in the sense that it is an attack by that genocidal terror of which Hamas is but one proxy on our civilization. Do you feel, Michal, that the level of anti-Semitism, not only in this country, but around the world, gave Hamas, in a sense, a green light to do what they've done? You know, when the Nazis perpetrated their atrocities during the Holocaust, they hid what they did. They understood that the immorality of what they were perpetrating was going to, at some point, be told or revealed. But as opposed to the Nazis who hid what they did when they perpetrated the atrocities of the Holocaust, these barbaric, savage terrorists, they live streamed what they did. And so when you ask me that question, they knew that they were going to receive support around the world. They were not ashamed. They were proud of what they did. And in fact, when immediately, but immediately, it didn't take years, it didn't take decades, it took days for not only the denial of what happened on 10-7, but the justification and support for. So they were right that they relied on what they knew they would receive right here in North America. If 11 days after 9-11, there were people in the streets holding up signs that say, we are Al-Qaeda, that is what happened. People stood in the streets of Toronto, in Montreal, and held up signs that said, we are Hamas, from the river to the sea and glory to our martyrs. That's the Hamas charter. And yeah, that makes me think that they did know that they would receive support from around the world.
Michal Kotler-Wunsch, Israel's new special envoy to combat anti-Semitism. A big task. You're fully aware of that, going into this eyes opened. And after hearing what you've said, the best of luck. I appreciate that. And I just want to say, you know, as we mark uh, Hanukkah and we light the first candle, the importance of allyship, of friends that I know we have, that is the only way that we will be able to combat this together. And in that sense, when we light candles on Hanukkah, we realize that small, a very small light, together with additional small lights, every night we light another candle. Only that can actually extinguish the darkness. And it is a dark moment in history, but I know that we can reach across difference, real or perceived differences, and actually identify the opportunities of this moment in order to not only combat anti-Semitism, but ensure that this attack on our shared humanity, on our shared civilization, is one that we can endure and we can fight back together in order to be able to reclaim and protect exactly what we were meant to do, which is our shared values and our shared principles of life and of liberty. Michal Kotler-Wunsch. Israel's new special envoy to combat anti-Semitism. I'm Bob Komsik, and this is a Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, why does having a female surgeon mean saving the system big bucks? We want to understand, you know, what are some learning lessons we can find here amongst, you know, perhaps our female surgical group that we can teach to all physicians. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. A study carried out by two U of T doctors has discovered that the gender of a surgeon can save healthcare a lot of money. It involved over 1 million adult patients who had about two dozen common elective and emergency surgeries between 2007 and 2019. The co-authors found costs for patients whose health data was checked at one month, three months, and one year after surgery were about 10% lower if they had a female surgeon. The study can be found in the Journal of the American Medical Association Surgery. Co-authors are Dr. Christopher Wallace from the U of T and Dr. Angela Jareth, who's also a professor there. Dr. Jareth, what was the impetus to carry out the study? You know, Bob, this paper is um, amongst a series of papers that our team have produced where we've really been focused at looking at surgeon factors and seeing how that affects outcomes for our patients. And we've been using large databases that we have here in Ontario. One thing that we can look at very well is the sex of our surgeons. So our prior um, pieces of work have looked at outcomes that patients and doctors are all interested in. How do outcomes like death, complications, readmission, length of stay, those kind of things vary between similar patients having surgery with a woman versus a similar patient having surgery with a man. And those prior papers have shown that Uh, those outcomes, those adverse outcomes are lower amongst patients 
having surgery with a, a female surgeon compared to a male surgeon. So that really laid us down to think about, gosh, you know, what, what happens to healthcare costs if we are seeing a very consistent signal that outcomes seem to be a little bit worse amongst male surgeons, both in the short term, like 30 days after you have a procedure and even a year later. And that was the basis of this study where we wanted to look at costs of surgical care, again, in a very meaningful way um, within that short term period at 30 days after surgery. And we know care doesn't finish just in that short term period. Many patients go home needing um, assistance to support their discharge, be it home care or rehab. So we looked at all kinds of things well out to a year after their surgery. What do you do with the findings? It's a great question. Um, you know, the findings show uh, a 9 to 10% uh, lower costs amongst uh, patients who are having surgery with a woman versus having surgery with a man. You know, we are um, at a stage where we're seeing a very consistent signal, and I will place it in context, that we're not the only authorship group who has found these findings. These findings amongst sex differences among doctors has been seen in other specialties. We're at the stage in perioperative care where we really need to understand what's driving these differences in care. And we want to understand, you know, what are some learning lessons we can find here amongst, you know, perhaps our female surgical group that we can teach to all physicians, probably even out of surgery, where you've got a lot of patient contact to try and close this gap in outcome. So that's really the stage we're at. That kind of study needs a different kind of method. Right now, we've been using big data, um, but now we're moving on to kind of doing more qualitative studies to work out, you know, how do people practice differently? Does that mean you and your group have another study that you'll be taking on here, or you're just saying that is something that needs to be studied, not necessarily by you and yours? Yeah, we have taken it on, Bob. We have started some work um, with some thoughtful funding that we've received internally to get going on this question, because everyone is super interested, including us. If we can find out some differences in practice, we don't think these differences are in the operating room from technical issues, from prior studies as well. We think perhaps there's differences in the way we communicate with our patients before surgery, preparing them for procedures. The wheels tend to fall off after you have the surgery. That kind of diligence and follow-up. Are there like simple lessons we can learn about how certain individuals practice that we can all learn from? Like these are very potentially very cheap, cost-effective solutions with little technological revolution required that can have substantial impact on our healthcare budget. So in the meantime, nothing to, to worry about if uh, someone should find themselves in uh, operating room looking up and seeing that it's a man versus a woman? 
Yes, no, look, I, I'm an anaesthetist. I work with a lot of different surgeons across specialties. I, I think the key thing is to be very open as soon as you enter the surgeon's office of understanding what this procedure is, what the value is, and also kind of preparing, uh, you know, how things might look like even after you leave the hospital. Um, you know, some patients who may be completely independent and live by themselves may need some support for a while. And it's kind of that shared um, decision making that requires um, thoughtful question asking, listening and you know, developing a good rapport with the team and making sure you're an equal partner in, in the process as well. Dr. Angela Jareth, thank you very much. Very uh, interesting look at things here, and uh, the explanation uh, made it uh, easy enough to follow. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Dr. Angela Jareth, co-author of a U of T study that found having a female surgeon means a cost savings to the system of about 10%. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Kopsick for Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.